Hey folks, welcome to the Eat Well Podcast. I think this is episode 18. That might be the first time I've actually got it correct. Um, and I'm hanging out at, at uh, Eat, Eat Well HQ here on 31st Avenue in Vancouver. And um, I've got, joining me, I've got uh, Jody Peck from Wild Northern Way, who you would have met. We ta- talked a little bit about uh, the guide outfitting industry in a previous podcast. And I'm also hanging out with uh, Mark Perrier from the Osteria Savio Bope, which is a beautiful restaurant in the neighborhood, uh, Italian restaurant. And um, the three of us uh, are hanging out because we're pals, but we partnered up on a project uh, this spring called The Wild Feast, where we um, made dinner for about a hundred people at a restaurant in, in downtown Vancouver. And, uh, we served all wild game for the meal. So this podcast, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about what the whole wild feast was all about. And I also want to talk a little bit about, um, well, I got these two who know a lot more about cooking than I do. I want to talk about some fundamentals of cooking wild game meat. So we'll cover off a few, few things, but let's, uh, introduce the guests and get them hanging out. So Jody, you want to say hello? Hey, how's it going? Cool, Jody. Um, and uh, why did you jump on board of the Wild Feast project? Uh, well, because you asked me, number one. <laughs> and we do a lot of cooking and eating together. I feel like you're my you're my dinner my my dinner party friend. So it just made sense that we would extend that to about a hundred people instead of just you know our little crew. Cool. And what do we have for dinner tonight? Oh, tonight Dylan made us amazing white tail. Well, actually, there's so many things. It was a, a Thai-inspired meal, and there was a Thai salad with whitetail chops of some sort to start. Yeah, sliced up. On sliced up. Yeah, it was delicious. I have lots of basil in the garden right now, which is... I've never grown basil. Well, Karen helped grow some basil in the garden, and I have lots of basil now. And then we had a uh, pad thai with spot prawns and halibut. It was... Pretty awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty tasty meal. Yeah. And the hell of it came from a fishing trip with Mark. Anyways, Mark, we went fishing last week. What was, how was your first West Coast fishing experience? That was amazing. Yeah, I'd never been out uh, ocean fishing like that before, so cool. it was great. So what did you think when you saw that fish at the deck? The halibut? Yeah. It was big. <laughs> no, I like I like the harpooning part. That was, that was kind of the highlight for me. Totally. I love their eyes. Oh, the, 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 they migrate. The creepy eyes. eye. Yeah, yeah. The one they, they start out with eyes on each side of their face, but because they, they lay down on the sea floor and they hang out and like wait for prey to come above them, their eye that's on the sandy side on the bottom side eventually migrates to the, uh, the to the to the, the top. To the top. So they can look at it. So they have eyes on the same two eyes on the same side of their eventually body. Eventually, two sides. I, I don't know what point in their development that they actually migrate over. The eye actually migrates over. But do you yeah. see young ones with their eyes on the proper side? I've never caught a young one, so I wouldn't know. But they, I mean, I've caught some that are like maybe ten or twelve pounds, which I assume are a year old or two years old. Or they, they're not very old, and they have they already have the eyes migrate over. I mean, it's very obvious of the halibut because. They have a white side, which is the underside. It never mm-hmm. sees the, it is not, and then they have a dark side, which is camouflage side that would, if they were laying flat on the bottom of the ocean, you'd never be able to see them unless they moved. So crazy. So. Fish are such crazy beings. Fish, crazy beasts. All right. So fish and trip, Mark and I had a great fish and trip. But anyway, Mark, say hello. And, uh, hello. And how did you want, how did you find your way to the Eat Wild podcast? I was actually just trying to think of that, how I, how I met you, but I think it would have been through the BHA. 
Um, and then we started talking about doing a dinner. And then the next thing I knew we were planning this the eat wild dinner. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. So I had been, I had this, I, I, when I started eat wild, one of the ways, well, one of the things I thought was super important was, uh, making, like really telling the story of food and hunting and, and telling the story of like feeding people. And, and from my background as, as from a hunting community, like my dad was super passionate about feeding people. And we were bullshit about that earlier, about, you know, talking about my, my dad and his Thai cooking and stuff. But, uh, he just loved cooking for people. And he loved, and the reason, and the reason why he hunted was so he had lots of meat and the reason why he fished was he had lots of fish so he could then feed his community and his friends and, and have lots of cool dinner parties. And, in my mind, like, like hunting is about feeding people and facilitating these awesome dinner parties. That's what I think the epitome of hunting is and why, 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 why I hunt. And, and that narrative is not very well told in our community. I think a lot of people think about hunting and they think about like, they think about, um, well, old white dude sitting on top of dead animals and with photographs of of this. And then Jody's very familiar with that. She's laughing. At me right well, I mean, for, for me, the connections are really similar. It's the same as a restaurant. A restaurant's just about feeding people, right? When you're a chef, it's the same. You just, that's the main reason that you want to be a chef because you like cooking for people and feeding for, and feeding people, big groups of people. Um, so, I mean, if you can feed people wild meat, even the better. Yeah. Well, if you can go get it yourself, you can go get it yourself. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, it just, it just feels so well, creates a whole cycle of cool stuff that happens there. Yeah, I think the dinner party, that's like the, that's the like candy on top because you're hunting to feed yourself and your family and then you get to share your abundance with mm -hmm. your, with your people and your extended community and that is pretty awesome. So you shouldn't get to show off. Yeah, showing off. It's great. <laughs> yeah, well, you, gave, you, you gave me shit because I've given away, I've given away half the fish probably. Oh, dude. I just keep yeah. giving her away. No, you got to cook it for people. <laughs> no, I'm just giving her away. No, don't give it away because they'll ruin it. You can't possibly cook out as well as you can. Don't wow. say that in public. People will keep coming to you. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I'm upset about that. That's true. Um, anyways, going back to where I was going there with my thought. So when I first started Eat Wild, I, 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 I did this thing called like Dine on Eat Wild, which was I, I, would, I would basically have i would have people come over uh shelly who was partnered with me as we developed the holy wild concept would put up her she had a beautiful loft apartment in east vancouver and we would serve dinner to like 25 people and i would bring wild game and then i would do a, i'd cook for 20 25 people everybody would donate a bit of money we would we would put the um all the donations from the dinner would go towards the nature trust and their programming and the good work that they do and and it would have this awesome like table full of like non hunters have an experience with, with wild food and, 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 and have well prepared wild game. So not just, so we have a lot of people who were just, we came out because it was like a pop-up restaurant concept and that was kind of hip in Vancouver and it kind of fell into that. And there was a bit of like buzz around that in the community when I started doing them. Um, and in the end, we just, all these cool people come out and they learn about hunting and they experience wild game and it would just, Hopefully, I, I mean, and I think, I mean, just based on the conversation that would have, would help change the dialogue away from some of those negative connotations of the stereotypes associated with hunting and bring out some of these positive conversations around, wow, this is what you're able to go out and hunt this and bring it home and serve this amazing dinner. Like that's, that makes sense to me and I support it. And that's, so anyways, fast forward. I did that for a few years and, and it's a pile of work, to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's too much work when you're trying to grow a business. And I kind of backed off a little bit, but with the intention of scaling up and doing something a little bit 
uh, bigger with the support of a team. And I've been kind of trolling around trying to find the team to do this with. And, and it was funny because I was, I was, when I met you, met you, Mark, I was like talking about hunting and I found out that you were, that you were, you were Chef Mark from Savio. Mm. And I kind of, and I was like, and right away I, I, I mentioned the dinner idea to you and you're like, well, you were like, I'm in. Yeah, I'm keen. So yeah, yeah I was like, this is okay. <laughs> yeah. And I actually didn't know when you said like, I'm in, I actually didn't know that like how successful Savio had been. I didn't realize it was one of the top restaurants in Vancouver. I didn't know you were one of the top chefs in Vancouver. So it was sort of a bonus that not only did I have a chef that was keen to partner with you, that was part of the hunting community that was committed to conservation and all the ideas that we were talking about after our first conversation. Mm -hmm. And also you, you, I mean, it was kind of, well, the dinner sold itself once we kind of got rolling, which was great. And yeah, it was great. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, that was, anyways, thanks for, thanks for helping me and, and, and jumping on board. And, and, uh, once we, Developed that well once we kind of committed to the idea, and of course the idea floated the idea over to Jody, and and you jumped on board pretty quick. I think I was doing a very different kind of cooking for your workshops. <laughs> not yeah. quite, not quite as, not quite as fancy. Oh, but God, you have a reputation. So Jody does. So we do, we do these like workshops, a uh, three day hunter field skills workshops, where we take a group of people up to. Uh, our friend Aaron Kendall's singing Lance ranch. And it's, uh, um, it's a beautiful spot and Aaron cooks for us and she's a wonderful chef. And then we brought Jody in to help cook for well, us. I mean, the first year that I came, well, pretty much every year for the October one, I come right out of being a bush cook in the Northwest territories being, you know, in, in the far North, very remote, only cooking wild game for for quite a long time so when i when i come in i'm i'm definitely prepared <laughs> totally as in like having an elk in the back of your minivan prepared well you know if you if you have a minivan you should probably use it i guess so so it's great <laughs> I, I love i love the story so so when we um so jody was showing up for her first gig as, the, as our as our chef for this uh hunter field skills workshop and uh myself and Rob who's one of the mentors and Jeff Horsfield who helps us out and my brother Ben the four of us showed up like three or four days early to the hunting camp to like try and shoot an animal um, on the property or near the property so that we would have an animal to work with during the workshop because it'd be really cool for when you have your 12 participants show up as a deer hanging on the meat pole and then from there it's just learning opportunities galore right well we hunted for four days straight no luck whatsoever feeling pretty like you know pretty bummed about our level of success and then jody like rolls it onto the in, on the ranch late for dinner already late for dinner <laughs> well just, late for cook, starting to cook dinner that is totally <laughs> She's like, do, you, do you think a couple couple people can like uh yeah well i had a i had an elk that i had just shot so i'd hunted really hard i had no intention of rolling up with an elk that still needed to be hung but i <laughs> i had a hard time getting one that year so uh, i had to hunt to the final hour and then i somehow managed to get one which was i i would i didn't think I was going to that year, but anyway, I got one luckily and just basically got it cooled down overnight and then had to drive to singing lands to come cook for you. And, uh, so obviously I put it in my minivan cause you know, that's what I drive. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> I rolled in and I was like, I got this full neck roast. Cause I have, I really love cooking a neck roast with the bone in. Do you, do you like doing that? Like I've, I've never done that. With I just, I just did it with a lamb just the other day where 
I just, when I'm, when I'm butchering, I just have this thing where I like just cutting the full neck off. I know it seems quite barbaric, but I like it. It's got, it's got a great flavor. Neck is a great slow braise cut of meat. So I had my neck roast in my hands and elk neck roast is quite large. So I like, you know, ran into the kitchen with my neck roast under my arm. And I was like, Hey, do you boys think you could hang this elk (laughs) for me? I'll just back my minivan up here. Anyway. That's awesome. Though. It was like, quite funny. Yeah, you, like I instantly had like the twelve participants were like rushed over to the minivan. They're all chipping and helping out, and like Jody was the star of the of the rest of the uh, the weekend. I just had to get busy and start cooking. <laughs> yeah, well, you had all the credibility, and then poor Rob and I and Jeff were trying to like reestablish our career. <laughs> good for you guys. Yeah, it was good, good for it you was guys. Great. It was great. Hey, that was a lot of fun. So. Anyways, anyway, so so it was a treat to have you. I mean, what I liked about the team was that you know, Mark, you come from a professional chef background. How long, where did you, where did you start chefing? Uh, mostly here in Vancouver at a restaurant called West with uh, Chef David Hawksworth is where I started. Okay, uh, I worked for him for about six years, um, but in total, I've cooked for about twenty years nice. and spent three years as a, a professional butcher as well. So, okay, cool. So come by it honestly. Yeah, lots of work. Yeah, lots of work, and um, and then and then Jody, your your cooking background is just. I yeah, I grew up cooking in the bush in hunting camps. Um, I I feel like some people will have heard our previous podcast. I won't go into it in too much detail, but uh, basically, I grew up in the hunting industry, so I have been a hunting camp cook since. Well, my first season, I was four years old. Obviously, my mom was the cook, uh, but my grandma was a hunting camp cook as well. And, uh, I got my, I had to learn how to butcher cause my mom hated it. So by the time I was about seven, I had to start butchering and, uh, <laughs> my mom would send me to the meat tent with a, with a butcher knife and a cutting board and say, just like go cut something up the hind quarter for dinner. So I had to learn very early on how to butcher, but I somehow really like and enjoy, um, just learning the cuts of meat and, and butchering. I like, I like having my meals start from a full carcass, I think. And I now realize that's such a a luxury. That's actually a gift to plan my meals from imagining the full animal. And then, and that's, you know, that's the basis of my meals. And then I can, you know, start by cutting the piece of meat and then go from there. Yeah. It was kind of fun. Funny Uh, tonight I had, we had this elk's, uh, steak salad basically and white tail what yeah wait sorry thanks white tail <laughs> so, salad. Um, and uh the, the package in the freezer said chops so you pull it out and i took it out of the freezer that opened it up and they're and they're like this the, the butcher had they were definitely chops but they but in my mind chops are like back straps cross cut right and then these were miscellaneous chops of meat. quarter yeah from somewhere on the animal and it was it must have been like there was like four pieces of meat left after he'd finished butchering my animal and put all four pieces together into one package and and uh and it was great because the between the three of us we could decipher which, where each piece came from like one was a sirloin one was a shoulder and one was actually a, a, a backstrap so it was kind of great that with the background you know <laughs> decipher it but anyways um so the, I, I should just go back to the wild feast and, and kind of what we were up to. So as I said, we were sc- we scaled up the concept of the dine on eat wild to what, what I, what I thought would be really cool to do would be to serve a wild game meal 
in a restaurant prepared by professional chefs and served by professional servers in an environment that was like truly a cool environment, like a restaurant downtown Vancouver, where you would in, in the, in the, in kind of the foodie quarter of Vancouver. And I think most people, their only opportunity to have experience wild food is to, is to be either at my, you know, at my dinner table or somebody who is, has a passion for cooking for people and, and they have a lot of wild game in the freezer. And that's, that's pretty rare to have that opportunity. It's pretty rare in Vancouver. It's really rare in Vancouver. Yeah. It's very, it's very normalized where I come from. Mm-hmm. Totally. Now yeah, it's normal where I grew up as well. Of course. Oh yeah. You're from the, I'm from the Kootenays. Yeah. yeah. And then Jody, you're from, I'm from the peace region. Peace region. So the, like northern bc growing up is normal yeah or at least not out of the out of it wasn't strange okay so in your experience growing up mark Mm -hmm. would you say that that the that the gamey growing up was well prepared to the or or not to say well prepared did it did it meet the like the potential of of, of the meat no so elaborate on that a little bit. I just think that, you know, a lot of a lot of just regular people or regular hunters, you know, they have sort of a, a limited repertoire. So they make a lot of sausages or they make a lot of pepperoni or just a lot of grind, right? When there's if you Which if is you, delicious, but you which can is great, expand upon Which is great, it. but there's a lot of other other cuts and other ways of preparing things that if you if you know how to you know how to make other things taste good like uh, example so at the at the restaurant, you know, we I cook a lot of offal, you know, uh, it's What's not awful. Organs. Okay. Um, but it's not hard to make steak tenderloin taste good, but to, you know, to make tripe taste good or to make tongue taste good or to make, I don't know, brains taste good or pig's feet taste good. You, you have to have some cooking skill. And I've, I've sort of taken the same approach to the game cooking. You know, I'm, I'm a relatively new to the hunting um, as an adult. I grew up hunting, but sort of lost track of it for about 20 years while I was cooking. Um, so I've only been sort of cooking my own wild meat for about two or three years, but I apply sort of the same principles, you know, um, I got a bear this spring and is an older bear. And, you know, sometimes maybe you need to braise it for, for 14 hours to, to make it tender. I didn't realize it would take so long, but so you just need to apply the correct cooking technique to whatever you're preparing. Yeah. I grew up in the, in the hunting industry, so we're trying to kill old and big yeah. animals. Yeah. So when I hunt for myself, I will try and scare that big animal out of the way of that young one. <laughs> uh, I'll do anything for that beautiful, easy to cook, delicious, tender Two moose. Two and a half year old moose. Oh, nothing like it. It's my favorite thing ever. Just like trying to spook just the old guy out of the way. But I have learned how to cook on these older animals and you just have to, you just have to deal with what you, what you have. I think that that's one of the biggest things that people that scares people or they're like, I had once had moose and it wasn't good. But what people don't realize that every step of the way affects how the meat tastes, how it was shot, what it was eating before it was killed, how it's uh, field dressed, how it's hung how it's butchered and then how it's cooked. So there's so many steps along the way. If you have, you know, an elk that's eating alfalfa, that's like two and a half years old, and then you shoot it with a clean shot and you get it right into a cooler and then you hang it for two weeks and then you skillfully butcher it and then prepare it with tons of skill and knowledge, you have some of the best meat in the entire world. 
if you have a ruddy old mule deer that oh, someone shoots so and then doesn't hard on those old mule deers. Oh, well, I, what can I say? I grew up in the, in the far north. I have a lot of <laughs> I get a lot of premium meat, yeah, I know. <laughs> but it makes a big difference, right? Even what the animals are eating makes such a huge difference. And then you have to work with that. And there's usually a way to work with it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So with, so with the, with the concept of the wild feast, it was just like, how do we bring like, I mean, some people have experienced ruddy mule deer and that's their one experience, right? And then they're off wild game forever. They're, they're off wild game forever. But like to have venison crudo prepared for them, like amazing, amazing. And like to, and, and so to, to bring that to people. So, so the concept of the wild feast was to let's do this, like, have a full on Vancouver dining experience with the support of awesome chefs have amazing, have amazing quality meat to serve to people and try to serve it to like, not like the, the whole thing with the wild foods, we we're trying not to serve wild game to kind of the, the, the existing hunting community that have, may have already had its opportunities. So we we're trying to reach out to like indigenous leaders. We we're trying to reach out to influencers and politicians and the media folks who just could, you know, have this experience, have a positive experience with eating wild, wild meat and, and, and then hopefully help change their, well, help not necessarily change their perspective, but, but give them a point of reference that's super positive around hunting. So that when they're, when they have an opinion around hunting, they're like, well, you know, those guys that are shooting lions in Africa are terrible people, but I did have this amazing meal prepared by these, you know, um, you know, this group of people who are trying to create this community around eating wild food. And well, one of the things when you feel connected to your food, especially if it's a wild animal and you're using many all, or all of the parts of that animal, you then feel a connection or you see the connection at least to the land where it comes from, which comes from a very specific region. And then you maybe you think more about that region and what happens in that region. And maybe you think more about the people in that region and it becomes this full circle experience yeah. that isn't just, I went to a restaurant and I had this and I liked it or I didn't. It becomes this whole life cycle and and just really embodied experience It's very, you know, it's life, it's death, it's all the things. Totally. And I mean, at, at the end of the day, we, we did throw down and, and Mark led the chef team to make this amazing nine course meal. But throughout that meal that we, we really wanted to create that connection for people to understand that these critters that, so the, another thing we should point out is that all the meat was donated by the backcountry hunters and anglers of British Columbia. So there's a relatively new conservation organization here that we're all teamed up with and part of, um, that, that, um, we're, we're trying to find a way to have an impact on how do we do a better job of conserving wild land so that wild critters can have a place to live. And so, and you know, by virtue of that, we can all continue to do what we do, which is to go out and harvest and, 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 uh, from the land. And, and, um, but I guess the end, the end result of this meal is like feed people, connect people back to the meat that they're, that they're eating and then connect that meat back to the place that it came from. And, and that was sort of the goal of the dinner is at the end of the day, all these influencers and politicians that came, we could say to them, Hey, like this elk is from here, this bison's from here. And, you know, over the course of the, of the dinner, we, we had that conversation through a couple of different, you know, we had a quiz that talked about where animals were from, but we also, I did a little speech around why it's important that we 
protect the places that these critters live. And, and that was the whole point of the wild feast. And, and, and I think to some degree, we, we, I think we did it. We achieved I think that. it's, a, it's a multi event kind of conversation because when you think of dinner, you have dinner most nights and part of having dinner is having conversation. And when you're, eating the food you're often talking about the food and it just is that whole full circle experience i know with my cooking that's like that's my that's my main goal that's my that's the reason why i cook is is i think of the food where it comes from i try and pair the wild meat with the with the wild plants that are growing in the same area it's all about the land that it comes from and then it connects the people the people connect with each other and it's this this like lovely connection throughout the meal totally it's super nice yeah it feels great feels good that feels great and it feels like it, there's a purpose to it right so mark what did you get out of this meal like when you after you cooked it and they like that vibe that you had at sort of the end of the meal when we kind of delivered what, what was the vibe that you had what did you take away from it hmm. just for me it was it was really nice to see people that, who had never had a chance to eat these types of meats um just really enjoy eating it you know, and maybe not even realize that they're eating wild meat. Because um, I think the majority of the people there, like you said, there weren't, it wasn't like we were cooking for a bunch of hunters, you know, for the most part, it was people from Vancouver. And um, just to see the surprise, you know, because I think maybe they had had these these negative experiences in the past and, and then they're eating this food and, you know, they're eating little stuffed pastas and they're eating raw venison and they're eating uh jody made the canada goose prosciutto you know they're eating these this wild meat in all these different forms that they'd never even thought of and uh yeah hopefully we sort of change their mind on on maybe how hunters hunters are uh, yeah, I, I think there was a lot of, I mean, maybe I mean, yeah. the people that were there are like blown away. I mean, the, the disappointing part is that we, we, we have a limited capacity for how many we sold, I think 85 or 90 tickets for the event. And we had capacity for about 80 and, and, and we just couldn't sell any more tickets. We had so much demand. Like, I mean, we sold out in a day for the event and um, we just had a, I mean, but it was all donated meat. So there's, I mean, that's another thing about, eating wild food is that it is not an infinite resource and that's part of the experience of eating it as well and that's part of the reason why you feel so grateful to be eating it and you have that connection is because you understand that you're really lucky to be accessing this and that somebody harvested it and somebody cared for it none of all of the meat was was hunted and then donated and most of it was uh was field dressed and butchered by the people that harvested it. It was, it was carried, really very, carried out. Yeah. Carried out. It was really, it was very generous. The well, whole and, event. And, and, and like when we, when I brought this to the, to the community of backcountry hunters and anglers, like, like the, the team there that we, there's probably about a hundred super active members that come out regularly to the, to the, to our meetings. And like, everybody was on board. So everybody doing it. And, and, and then the challenging part was, is like, okay, well, you, know, you want to feel like, you kind of compelled to want them to they donate meat. You think that they could come and enjoy it. But part of the, like, you know, part of the caveat of doing this event was that if everybody that donated meat came to the dinner, then it would just be cycling this more hundreds at the table. And everybody was on board with the idea of just like, Hey, we're going to donate this and we're going to give up our seat to somebody who hasn't experienced this. They can be, they can help be an advocate for conservation. And that was the coolest part about this is that those, those folks who did donate, didn't expect to see at the table 
they did this as a even though thing. many of those people, the hunters, wouldn't have experienced uh, beautiful food. Like, Nothing like this. Yeah. Like I felt very fortunate to be there. You know, even as you know, yeah. whatever you you did, <laughs> you put the whole thing together. Well, I know, but still, I was like, oh, it's just I felt like almost stuff, and I was like, ah, so I was eating it all. Okay, so okay, so what are some of the tell, what do we eat? So yeah, talk about some of the dishes because they were really cool. So what was your favorite? What was your favorite favorite dish, Mark? Uh, do I gotta go first? Uh, I think I like the one of the pastas, either the the. Canada goose agnolotti or the bison with the pappardelle. So I like I like handmade pasta. So um, you know I'm going to go with the goose agnolotti. That was that, my favorite. Yeah, well, that <laughs> blew me out of the water too. So yeah, you made that dish. So tell we, tell we us did about that. This. So um, so I don't know where we got the geese from. You got me a bunch oh, yeah, of geese. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Um, but they were all. Uh, they were donated by Dale Midlich. Yeah, but Dale hadn't plucked them or gutted them. He just shot them and put them in the freezer. So um, <laughs> he donated them. He donated them. So I'm lucky enough that I've got I've got some good boys in the kitchen who are willing to to come on their days off and help us out. So yeah, so they plucked them and gutted them, and that that was a little bit different. Um, and then we what did we do? We seasoned them up and and. Uh, cooked them for quite a while and I'm lucky enough at the at the restaurant we have an apple fired uh, wood grill I've got a spit so we spit roasted spit roasted the geese till they were completely cooked through took all the meat off the bone chopped it up uh, really finely and uh, used it to make a stuffed uh, stuffed pasta filling for agnolotti which is a small little uh, stuffed ravioli like pasta from Piedmonte in northern Italy and then we used the bones to make a sauce and uh, ended up glazing the pasta with you that. You roast the bones, right? We roast the bones and you make a stock, reduce that down, um, add it, you know, and then just finish it with butter and then um, toss the pasta back in with that. And, it was so um, delicious. Yeah, I don't know if very many people there have, have, have had that type of, of thing no. before. So. No. Also, good. you make, you make handmade pasta that's that's one of your the restaurant things. makes ha- a lot of handmade that's, pasta that's one yeah. of the things yeah. you do it's not like yeah. it's not like this is your first time making no. handmade pasta so so it was really good yeah the handmade pasta is pretty good super pretty good so, so the agnolotti well and they're hard to, they're they're small right mm-hmm. i mean they're about the size Labor of your intensive. your pinky fingernail or a little bit bigger maybe right so which is neat because it's a very po- like goose one of the challenges with goose is it's very power it's a very strong flavor it is strong. It, it tastes, has it that tastes, wild flavor. When people yeah. say wild game, it has that wild yeah. flavor. It encompasses wild game flavor. Mm-hmm. So, so it, and you were saying earlier about kind of balancing out the, the flavor of the meat with the, the pasta. Um, oh, just agnolotti. Just, I really like the shape of agnolotti because the ratio of, of filling the pasta is, is perfect. Yeah. Um, and you can, you know, you get, when you get, well, we serve 20 or 25 little pastas in a bowl. If a person gets that, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool to see the amount of work in, in one dish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful dish. And simple. Like, it's relatively well, simple. It's, yeah, but it takes a dude about 10 <laughs> minutes to make to make that pasta for that one dish, for sure. Yeah, it's simple. That's somebody who's practiced yeah, that yeah, as well. It's simple in terms of, the, yeah, 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 exactly. But it's it's wonderful dish, though. Anyway, okay. Yeah, that was, that was probably my favorite. Um, and I also really liked uh, Jody's Tortilla. I like the tortilla a lot. Cause Actually, I've never... the tortilla was Dylan's okay. family yeah. recipe. Okay, because I've never eaten a lot of tortilla. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, my background's Quebecois, but even though my family's not Quebecois at all, so well, I always have this have affinity to, for tortier. I've always liked the idea of tortier. You have to I've come never. with us because we make Dylan's family tortier every Christmas, and we just make so many pies. It's your Christmas presents. Mm. Okay. So, so you, you're you're invited. I yeah. just invited. And Mark to our Christmas yeah, party. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so our two person. Yeah. So, so we do. So Jody, I make the pastry. A fucking amazing pastries. You just and, said the f word. Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, amazing pastry and and so i so I, I i i make the meat the meat it's like a it's it's interesting you don't br- like i'm used to browning meat when i cook for uh and and with torture you actually it's almost like you just add raw meat to a pot with spices and just like stir it up like a big slurry of meat with some potato yeah some potato in there but it's lots of aromatics in it that are that are yeah, interesting the sage is nice well, and there's like clove and yeah. all like there's all spice and there's it's very it's very Christmas. It's very Christmassy. It's, it's Christmas yeah. and a pie for sure. So anyways, I made the big slurry and then and then Jody knocks out like forty uh, you know pie plates and then we fill them up and then give them away for Christmas presents. One of the things about being a bush cook that has served me really well my whole life is that you have to do so much baking because yeah. there's no pastry cook or anything up in the bush (laughs) you do it you do it all so all of the like breads and pastries i've been doing that since i was a really little kid so i i just i just can do that stuff which i find it's really handy to just have that it's a it's a handy thing to just not have to think about yeah knockout pie crusts i tell you i and that's yeah and the butter biscuits Oh well, I feel like that's a whole other story. You just like we, we should just make, have <laughs> you a whole just like that stuff on the, on, the, on the butter biscuits. I'm not telling people my secrets. No, no, I'm not asking you. To. <laughs> <laughs> All right, favorite dish from the from the wild feast. Well, I like the agnolati as well. Um, I feel like I feel like we're not talking about some of the really beautiful foraged and uh, garden vegetables that we had as well because it wasn't just a big meat fest. Like the the meat was definitely the the centerpiece of the meals, but we had. Um, well, I'm just even thinking like with the bison dish, we had that, we had, uh, deep fried nettle as the garnish and just, we had some really, pasta was made with nettle. The pasta was made with nettle as well. Pustini, we had, nettle, pappardelle. Yeah. And then I know that we had some really beautiful, like, uh, peas that we shelled for hours and hours. We had so many fiddleheads. Oh, uh, Clippers Organics came through and they, they supported. The potatoes. Yeah. We just had some really great vegetables as well. I mean, we just had great ingredients in general. And the forged salad. The forage salad. That was oh, amazing. That was, nice, yeah. that was all wild forage. That was amazing yeah. with all of... There was Who was the forager that, w- that supported us? Uh, his, Lance, name is, his name is Lance. And what's his handle? I feel bad. I don't know. I just call him Lance. Lance, the forager guy. He's, yeah, he was he's gonna Lance is going to fucking kill me. Yeah, no, well, it's okay. uh, it's Lance great. Wildcraft. Lance there Wildcraft. There he is. So he, yeah, he, yeah, he actually goes out and harvests his wild stuff uh, and sells it. Yes, he does. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Anyways, he supported the dinner. We also had Clippers Organic, which is a farm in... Uh, oh, Coston. Coston, yeah. Thanks. Um, yeah, and uh, they're great people. And they came through with a pile of veggies for us. And then the, uh, and then the Helmer Spud farmers in the Pemberton Valley's it provided some potatoes so it was cool it was really yeah. cool when I, I loved the wild salad and i actually thought that the the salad was 
essential in just in the menu because we had, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is that we didn't have a steak chorus. Like we didn't have somebody donate like four moose backstraps for us to feed a hundred people with, with, uh, you know, rare steaks. And mm-hmm. there's a reason for that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of, of the meat that we used was slow braised or I know we had a heart skewer that was delicious. The heart skewer was, was really delicious yeah. and it was, it was grilled over the fire. Um, but we had all of this, all of this meat that, um, you know, wasn't what people would maybe instantly, it wouldn't, wasn't there necessarily their entry point to wild meat. Totally. Mm. Well, and I mean, if you look at a dish like the, the Sidka Blacktail Crudo yeah. that we did, you know, we, so Crudo is a, is like a Italian version of steak tartare, basically chopped up raw meat. But what we did was, um, we seamed out a whole leg. So you had to take out all the little seams, all the sinew, all the tendon. So you basically just have the pure meat and then you chop it, chop it raw. So I don't know how many, how many hunters are, are chopping up, you know, deer leg I to, and after, eating, after eating it raw with olive like, oil. But I mean, oh, it, that so was a good. dish I think that, that a lot of people hadn't tried before that, um, I agree. Right. And even just serving the heart. I mean, we didn't see many, even seem to have any problem getting heart donations, right? Because yeah. um, I have a heart in my freezer. Yeah. Well, well this is then, it. I mean, and, and we did think about this when we were planning our menu. We were like, okay, we're going to seek donations, right? So there's a bit of a stress. It, it was a little bit strategic about what we were asking from the community to donate, and then what we could expect to get as far as to be able to serve a meal for you know 100 people. Yeah. And like, obviously, we're not expecting to get loin steaks mm-hmm. for a hundred people because most hunters are especially in the spring that's gone yeah it should be gone by now she's not gonna get tenderloins but but <laughs> but we did plan on having some braising cuts right and that was what we ended up with for the bison and wild game is made for braising it's like such a beautiful way to use so many cuts i mean shanks neck meat brisket all these cuts of meat are just like it's so beautifully braised so tell me about braising so so we've already, we've already chatted for 40 minutes here we haven't even got to our like three ways of cooking meat so let, let's tie that in with because one of the one of the things we want to talk about was was like how to braise meat how to braise game meat and as, as our three ways to cook game so maybe just break that down for us a little bit if someone wanted to you know take a, a leg of their deer or well legs a perfect place to start so with wild game it's very lean which i'm sure everybody is aware of which is one of the challenges of cooking it or well for me it's just that's what meat is (laughs) and so if you take a leg there's a lot of cartilage and a lot of connective tissue especially near closer to the hoof so the shank and the lower part of the leg there's a lot of this connective tissue well if you slow braise it that connective tissue has a lot of gelatin in it and it just mm. just softens and tenderizes and makes the meat incredibly uh, just succulent. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to have really slow, long braised wild meat. And that will not be stringy and it won't be tough. It'll just be soft and just beautiful. That's just like the perfect way to cook shanks. Yeah. And bone in is great or, or, or don't have the bone. That's also fine. If you, if you're deboning it, cause you need to pack it out. Sure. There's still all that connect- You're not going to debone it and take all the connective tissue out in the field. So there's still all of that connective tissue, which is terrible to cook as a steak. Like you can't, can't. you can't chew through that. If you're going to, if you're going to fast cook that or fast grill it. Yeah. So yeah, slow braising is just such a great way to do that. Same with neck meat that has, 
a lot of sinew and connective tissue. You want to slow braise that. So how long? How, when you say slow braise, like what temperature and how long? It totally depends. It depends on the, it depends on the cut. It depends on how old the animal it, it is. And yeah, there's so, there's so many variables, but you just want to, you want to give it some time. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, do it for any less than six hours. That's for sure. I would say that yeah. would be your, that would be, you know, your minimum. But I mean, like Mark was saying, you, you did, was it your bear? You did it for 14 hours. Is that what you said? Bear neck and shank, bear neck and shank for 14 hours. It was an yeah, older it animal a long time. and yeah. it just took that long and, and you can do it really low, but I, did, but I didn't, so yeah, this is, I kind of messed up. I didn't know it was going to take that long. And so I added my vegetables too early. And then by the time the bear was done, my veg was, my veg was done. Your veg was stuck. <laughs> my <laughs> veg was done. So that's a good tip though. So it's a good one. This was my first, I mean, this is the first time I've ever cooked bear fresh. So any other than sausages and, um, but you had an older been, animal as an older well. Animal. So that's an older something bear, to yeah. take into consideration very much. Yeah. So. And it is a bit of a learning curve, but just low and slow. That would be my thing for the braising would mm -hmm. be like, you can't really go. I mean, as long as you have the time low and slow overnight is really good. Slow cookers are amazing. Slow they're, cookers, they're very, and, like, like low barrier entry yeah. level. And then the other thing would be sort of what you mentioned, Dylan would just be adding some kind of fat. I mean, when we were talking earlier, I thought you meant about more grind, but I often something I do when I'm raising game meat is I'll add pork belly chunks of pork belly or pancetta or bacon mm. um, often kind of finds its way into braises that I do mm. um, just so that you do kind of get that fattiness or the mouthfeel or uh, the other thing I've had a lot of uh, success with is uh, putting in a uh, split pig's foot. Oh yeah. Pig's foot has yeah. an incredible amount of um, like what you're gelatin. talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, and you can do um, that actually with any, with any hooves. Okay. So I've never had access to hooves or I always leave them in the bush. So oh. Um, but the, the, pig's, the, pig's, the pig's foot or the calf's foot is sort of a thing where you, you put that into braises and it, it really lends the body a lot of sauce and okay so, and so helps out. when I do when I do osaboka which is shanks which is like the, yeah one you of wouldn't have to do it with shanks so what's that I don't think you'd have to really do it with shanks not necessarily but just as a uh, one of the things that I, I know is, is it, so shanks are so Osoboka's cross-cut shanks, so the, the, mm -hmm. the, the front or the back leg of an elk or a moose or deer, um, cross-cut and, and one-inch discs, basically, um, is how is how I have the butcher do it for me. And then you and then you uh, uh, toss them in flour, just sear them on the outside, throw them in a pot with a, a cup of chopped carrots, cup of chopped celery, uh, half a liter of wine, and a little bit of stock, and then let that season it and let it cook for some time, some time, three or four hours minimum. I just, think more. Yeah. It's just, it's a bit of, it starts to happen at, at, at about three or four hours, but it starts to develop that. Like, and I think this is where I'm going with this, that there's sort of a gelatin look to it. It just sort of gets a little bit, um, it's a shine, a shine to it. Right. And for the first, Two and a half, three hours, there's no sign of it. And then you know it starts to get good after four hours when you see that shine. And I'm thinking now I gotta put a pig foot in there just to like get the extra. But that shine. but see that has so much of the gelatin and collagen in it. Yeah. The the pig foot, the, I think it's the collagen gets converted to gelatin yeah. when you cook it. Yeah, because so it, it comes out of the tendon, right? Yeah. Like, uh, of that, you can of see that. it within the meat on the cross cut shank. Yeah, yeah. So it starts to work its way out, right? Not also good. cross cut but that's has the, the best marrow. Part. I mean mm -hmm. like if you, I have had many times where I, like I've served Osopoco 
but I didn't have the four hours. It's a three hour or two hour roast of Woco. So you're kind of like chewy. It's kind of, yeah, it, it's the flavor is still good, but it's a bit chewy, but it doesn't have that wonderful. And did you, is it, would you call it mouthfeel or like what it gets that mm-hmm. slipperiness? Yeah. It's like, mouthfeel or unctuousness is a term that people use sometimes. It's really nice and soft. Yeah, unctuous. Yeah. But I don't know if you'd need the pig foot for that. I think if you're doing a shoulder or neck yeah. is when you probably want that gelatin in there, right? Yeah. Because you've already got the gelatin with the, with the shank. Yeah, that's... You're just, you just want more. Fair just want more. You just want more. I want more. Yeah, I want enough. more goodness because <laughs> it is so good and that's really like what makes it just so like remarkable. I, I don't know. I just, it, yeah, it just makes it so remarkable. Yeah. I, I mean, the it. best way I found to get around the time issue is to do it overnight. Yeah. You know, any yeah. kind of braising, I always try to do it overnight. So what temperature overnight would you would you leave it in the oven at? That's sort of what Jody said already depends on on the meat. 250 is great. Depends on the, yeah, 250 is ballpark, yeah. yeah. 250 all night. And there's the, I mean, the only thing you rather want, you just want to make sure there's enough moisture in there. Yeah, so I wouldn't do that with a hind quarter. Say say you have this, this really beautiful, like, sirloin tip roast. I probably would cook that hotter and faster and leave it nice and raw in the middle and not not slow braise it because that's drier meat it doesn't have it doesn't have the fat in it and it and that will get stringy and dry if you overcook it yeah so So you're thinking of doing that with those cuts that you can't make us into a steak pretty much anything in the hind quarter you can make into a steak let's jump from there and let's talk about steaks because i mean i think most hunters think about like they have a pile that when they when they go to the butcher they're like i want steaks and ground Mm-hmm. I think that will they do backstraps into steaks. Yeah, grind the rest. Grind the rest, and, or or like when I was a kid, I was like make everything into steaks because because <laughs> that's what I when I was you know sixteen years old and dropped my meat off at the butcher. I was like make it all into steaks because I thought in my mind, well, I mean that's all I knew how to make. Probably when I was fourteen or sixteen was steaks and burgers or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I didn't know that you not everything can be a steak. No, no, which I think is a super important thing to know about eating meat. So why can't everything be a steak? Because it gets too much exercise. Okay, so So, just break that down for us. Well, so you can think about it like, um, so the more exercise a muscle gets, the tougher it is, but the more flavor it has, right? Tenderloin. steak is a perfect example of that. Well, the way I think of it is tenderloin on a cow. At least what I've heard is that tenderloin on a cow only get exercise when the cow runs. So how often does a dairy cow run? Like, zero right so whereas wild animals are running around so i mean just from my again from my limited experience i find the only cuts that i find suitable as steak cuts are the the loin i mean you guys call it backstrap but i'm still a cook so i call it like rib steaks and loin steaks and tenderloin and stuff like that or chops or whatever yeah um other than that i don't yeah i can't do steaks with anything else i mean you can do like braising steaks or like i was talking about earlier i've had i've had a lot of success pounding out leg steaks into like a schnitzel or a scallopini it's it's called different things in different you know and then different cultures but if you bread those and fry them or or braise them that's a good trick to do that's that's a good trick i gotta do that that's a that's a hunting camp absolute classic Yeah. yeah because then it opens up more meat to, and you can to use the, hind, the hind quarter so the you hind can, quarter yeah you can, that's the classic yeah. ones for rouladen is a rouladen is, is a great is a thing to do classic with german meat. one yeah, yeah yeah as well so so you should just to, just to clarify though for um so the loin that the, the back strap the steaks country 
top sirloin you can you can get some steaks out yeah, of the yeah, top top sirloin and then pretty top much sirloin. everything else you have to work with and then that's at least from my experience again that's yeah, that and i totally agree it. i mean that's my experience as well i mean eye of round is really great for the pounding steaks because it's a nice sinew mm. free but it's actually quite a tough cut mm. of meat yep Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's great for the pound for if you're going to cut steaks and then pound them really thin and make it into some kind of schnitzel or some kind of uh, roulade and something like that. Because on a moose, the eye of round is like as big as your hand. Yeah. So that's oh. a big sized steak. Lots. Yeah, yeah. But if you're just going to eat that as a steak and think that it's going to be right, really tender and beautiful because it looks tender and beautiful, it's not. not. It's not. No. And, I, and, and another, I mean, I guess something that I'd like to talk about as well is just I think I think people in general need to adjust their expectations as far as tenderness totally. on meat. you know like we've been a lot of people they're they what they're expecting is you know meat they can cut with a spoon right like mm-hmm. meat like veal that's been bobby fed veal or milk fed veal or yeah, you know or like intensively cow, yeah. um grain finished beef or, or yeah. whatever it is you know that's very that's an anomaly meat it's just mm-hmm. incredibly tender right we've been sort it's of so spoiled curated. with that here it's not natural where i mean yeah, you can cook. I've the, some of the deer that I've shot. You can cook the loins as steaks. They're not. They're not the, the most tender steaks ever. I mean, they're still steaks, but they're not going to be like a really fatty, marbled tenderloin or something like that. I mean, right? one, so people's expectations, I think, need to just maybe be a little bit adjusted as far as how tender things should be. But I don't know, teeth or you know, you got to use your teeth. And <laughs> use those molars. Yeah, yeah, molars. Yeah, use them, right. You know? Enjoy the flavor that. for longer. Yeah, right? it's true. Like, things aren't supposed to be that tender. I think I'm it's, glad a, you it's said an anomaly. That. I yeah. think that that's a really important point. And then another thing as a cook that you can do. I mean, skirt steak, flank steak. These are some of my favorite, are, yeah. favorite tasting cuts of meat, and they are tough. And when I was growing up, we put those right in the grind pile. Mm-hmm. But now I love them. I, I mean, I can't imagine tacos without skirt mm-hmm. steak. Um, you just you just need to cut them. Properly cut them properly cooked, and yeah. then exactly that's what i was about to say you, you cut, cut them, them very very thinly across the grain and you you cook them on a like screaming hot griddle or right on charcoal or you just cook them crazy hot for a very short amount of time and then you slice them across the grain incredibly thinly and that's like part of the chewing is already done for you because you've already sliced it really thinly so this is uh, this is you did that tonight thing. you did that tonight with the steak salad that we had yeah and, and what, which is interesting because steak when we we so one of the things i do when i'm butchering is i leave like uh so if things are much more tender if you cross cut the grain as you just said mm-hmm. but we tend to like cut our chops up well it doesn't matter that much on on the loin less so but why do we cut them up in these one inch discs well, why don't we just leave the whole loin together? I always leave the whole thing intact, cut it leave after Leave the it's whole cooked. loin together, cook it as it's intact, like a four inches, you know, or six inch long piece of, of, of loin, and then cook it perfectly, and then just slice it cross green the whole way. Best way. I, I'm with you on that. Yeah, and, and I mean, I've, I started doing that a while ago, but I also started doing, like, um, parts of the... Because I, I like having stir fries, right? And so I'll take what I call tubes of sirloin, like a strip of sirloin that's like six inches long and two inches wide that with the, the, the length of the, the, the grain going lengthwise. And I freeze that and I call it stir fry. And then I just break that out. And when it's still frozen, mm-hmm. I cut it cross grain as thin as I can. And then I let it thaw out after that. And then I throw it my stir fry. So I have this cross cut 
nicely, you know, thin. And it's tender, sirloin. isn't it? Super tender. Yeah. Wonderful. So, yeah. but if you, cut, if you cut it the wrong way, it cut would it be a long string of meat. And basically, eat it. Yeah. I think well, what the same thing we do with roast, right? I mean, roast, yeah. you cost cut it as well, right? Yeah. I think what we're saying here is that you cannot treat wild game exactly as you would treat domestic meat. No, and no. It, and you just you just have to adjust some some things. You treat it treat it as wild game, not as domestic meat. Mm. And, and I think it needs to be good. it needs to be cooked with a bit more care and a bit more attention. You know, to doneness, it doesn't it doesn't tolerate overcooking as well. Yeah, when you're talking about steak, that's probably the next thing we should uh, talk about. Yeah, let's talk about that. So so when it comes to cooking a steak, what what from if you're cooking a wild game steak, what are some of the fundamental steps that you would take as a chef to cook a wild game steak? I would pull it out of the fridge about an hour before I cooked it so that when I was cooking it, it was not uh, cold. You want to cook it ideally from room temperature. That's one of the big things. I always pre-season. So I'd season it, you know, you could season it three or four hours before. Sometimes you can see the day before. That doesn't really matter to me. We season quite heavily before in the restaurant as well. So pulling it early, pre-seasoning it, I guess having the grill the right temperature, the pan the right temperature. And then not overcooking it. So for me, medium rare, and that's about it. Yeah. Any tips on what you look for to see when the steak is medium rare? No, I'm, and people ask you that all the time, but when you, I don't know, like you ask me, you just touch it or you just kind of look at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I got a video on it. If you cook like thousands and thousands of steaks, then you, you just know. sort of look at it yeah. and you touch it and then it's done. But I don't know how to, to tell people that it's done. Yeah. I've got a video that there's like three different ways to cook a, a game steak. Uh, I did it with Chef Whitaker uh, for a restaurant and we did like wow, a, is that? Yeah. a sous vide and we did a, a, what do you call it? There, we did a traditional so sort of searing the steak and then letting it rest. And then we did a, well, you throw it in the oven for a bit. Uh, and then you sear it at the end. Like a reverse sear. A reverse sear. Yeah, that was cool. I didn't know that before. I do um, that with all my roasts. That's how I cook That's how I cook larger roasts as well. Yeah. yeah. Low to high? Yeah. You know, low to high? Not yeah. yeah, low to high. It's kind of cool. I didn't know that before. But sous vide, I'm a huge fan of sous vide. Like, yeah. I mean, I know there's just sacrilege of the chef world, but you know, <laughs> I do a lot of sous vide. With I just stuff. fucking don't. I hate it. I don't <laughs> like it either. But it might be good for the game meat. I don't know. I don't like Great it. Great for the game I mean, sous vide. But, the game, that's the thing but is I the game, think reverse sear The game meat, you're such a limited margin for error that's the difference right like there's well, no margin for error and that's when you're what's cooking, wonderful right? about so the sous vide meat's right? going to give you yeah so when sure. i do a roast for be like consistent if well. so i do christmas dinner i got two roasts going uh for you know if i'm sure dinner for 10 people i'll put them in in the sous vide at 130 degrees cook them for and, and i got a tear i got the roosevelt duck we got this year is like an eight-year-old monster it's like what i grew up cooking yeah just a just a, just a huge a old super beast. tough old bowl. So, like, so I like like the sous vide. If I put it in with the sous vide for six or eight hours, it breaks it down at 130 degrees a little bit, softens it up a little bit, and then I just finish it with a sear uh, with the torture underneath underneath the. Uh, I think the sous vide works great for hunters because hunters just love gear, and it's another piece of it's gear. Another piece it's of another gear. piece of gear I they know, can have. I personally hate sous vides too, but but it's great when I'm trying to sit ten people for freaking dinner. I gotta get them all <laughs> sitting down, and then I can I can take it up. I can take it out of the uh, sous vide, sear it, rest it for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, get a reset around the table. And uh, I eat sous vide here yeah. all the time, and I think it's great when you cook it. I probably will never own one. Okay. Um, I think the reverse sear does the same thing. I have a meat thermometer. That was like something that I learned when I was when my first cooking job by myself. I was 19, and I was cooking in uh, this 
hunting lodge and I was definitely felt like I was in over my head and my mom gifted me a meat thermometer and I have learned to love that thing. And I take my meat out at 120 and then let it rest. And it always, it comes up a little bit and and that's just, that's just perfect for me. Mm-hmm. I like one. What, what's it? What well, is you the, sous vide it different because sous vide, you're not, it's not going to change temperatures. So you yeah. would sous vide it at a higher temperature than you would, than you would pull it out of the yeah. oven. And also like, I think if you sous vide, I mean, we go down a rabbit hole to, to sous vide, but I think if you sous vide at too low a temperature, that the meat actually almost tastes like livery. After yeah. A while. Okay. And it has yeah. a weird texture as well. Yeah, So I have any more research on that, but I, I've been having better results with this elk sous being at 132 degrees, which is a little bit like if I was like the steaks we had today, I would have like take them off at 125 or like 120, mm-hmm. other 125. Yeah. That to me is like a medium rare, yeah. White tail steak, whereas I think I like my elk rose to be at that as well. But this this elk is pretty. It needs to be cooked. He needs to be tamed. Well, this bit. is one of the examples of how you have to you you cook to what you have, and you cook to the animal that you've harvested, and you have that animal for the full year. Yeah. So you so you, you learn to how to, you learn how to feed, how to cook it. Yeah, you learn how to prepare it. Totally. Okay. So we've talked about steaks. We've talked about. Braising. I would say that I have one, my, my like go-to advice for wild game is to either undercook it or overcook it. I mean, not actually under or overcooking, but like if you're going to fast cook it, then fast cook it and take it off before it's cooked to what you would cook a beef steak at because yeah. there is very little fat. So it, and it continues to cook and it cooks a little more after you take it off the heat than like uh, any domestic farmed meat would. And then if you're going to slow braise it, then you just slow and slow for a really long time. And you can't really go wrong if you do those. Yeah, you can't go wrong with low and slow. No. No, just good things in there. The other thing I sometimes do is I like to, um, you know, you were talking about mixing pork. I like to use like wild sheep belly because because I am lucky enough to have many different animals when I'm cooking and sheep season is early season. I like to save all the beautiful sheep fat because it's beautiful. Yeah. And then I can use that when I'm like... If I'm going to slow braise a big chunk of moose, I'm just going to throw a piece big of that, honka, yeah, big hunk of that sheep belly just on top of it and let it go for a yeah. long time. Yeah, and that's keep, amazing. Does, I'm, just, I'm just curious because you don't use lamb fat often in the kitchen because well, it has it, such a strong flavor. Domestic sheep and wild sheep have quite a different flavor. Mm-hmm. Wild, wild sheep is really sweet. And I have no pork. I have no access to pork other than bacon. Mm. Um, and so, and bacon is really quite overpowering. It's a one, it's a mono flavor. If you, as soon as yeah. you bacon things, it becomes bacon flavor, which is not a bad thing, but you sometimes want variety yeah. and it's kind of cool to use wild sheep. Mm-hmm. It's only fat. The yeah. Only fatty animal. Yeah. It's the only, it's the only fatty animal, um, that, that we have. So, so I love to use it and sheep, wild sheep is a beautiful flavor. It's, it's just like, it's a, uh, it's special. I mean, not, not everybody gets to have it and I get to have it a lot and I get to cook it a lot. So, um, you know, both Mark and I are rolling our eyes as sheep hunters that are unsuccessful sheep hunters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the year. All right. All right. So this is the year this year. Yeah, this is, this is the year. Um, Mark, this is the year. Honestly, like they this say the that they say that the, the first year you start hunting sheep. Yes. I'm in year two. So is the, is the year that your sheep is born. If it so, takes me eight years to get a sheep, I'll kill myself. Oh, no, it'll take you eight years. Well, I don't know. You're a pretty ambitious hunter. I, I, I have a feeling you're going to have success. But um, anyway, not to get sidetracked. The, 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 the third thing I want to talk about was 
was make like you know how do you what what do you do with, with ground because you know if most animals you're going to end up with forty percent of the animals going to be ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I love it and, and it's funny because we're talking about like all the things that you know the, the scarcity of steaks on an elk. If you look at my freezer right now, like, like there's. Like I have lots of steaks left. I have no burger left. Like, <laughs> I had to it, come grind it, more burger. <laughs> oh, my dog's about to have a big crash here. Can you make sure she doesn't hit the table there? Can you just uh, yeah, grab her by the collar and set her down on the, on the ground? Or move the table out of the way? There we go. Thank you. Um, Claire's always a part of the Eat Wild podcast. And then she's going to storm around in circles. The wild podcast. So you're, so you're asking what, what to do with grind? Yeah, so, so ground. So like, yeah, so like you know, there, there's going to be a lot of ground that's going to come off an animal. Um, so if you want to make a meatball, if you want to make a uh, meatloaf, if you want to make a burger, what are a couple things for? Well, what did we do at the wild piece? What did we do? We had there was a there was a it was a ground dish that we did that you did. I should say we did. You did. Um, it was the uh, what did, what do you call it? The fagatini. Yeah. Yeah. The in Italian is called the fagatini, which is uh, sort of like a sausage, uh, usually with a lot of organs in it as well. But so we did a mixed meat fagatini that I think it was mostly deer. I think there's maybe some goat and some yeah, bear no in there. So much goat. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so in, in knowing that we were going to, like a lot of people would have uh, to donate to, the, to, to this dinner, mm-hmm. we knew that like, that we were going to get a lot of ground meat. So we were trying to come up with a menu item that was like, uh, it was interesting and, but also would value the, the, the meat that came in. That I was think ground. we called it the mixed bag fagatini, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Mixed bag yeah so it's a way of using up, um, I guess traditionally it would, it would involve, like I say, some organ meat. I don't know if, I don't think we, you know, you know what we did? We put chicken livers in there. That's what I did. Oh, cool. So I had a chicken liver plus all the game meat. Um, and then it's, there is some sort of binder in there as well. You know, there's bread, there's eggs. Um, and then it gets, uh, seasoned up quite heavily and then wrapped in coal fat Yeah. and then roasted in the oven and then, and then slowly braised with game stock. Nice. That's what we ended up doing. That was beautiful. That was a nice dish. Yeah, it's good. I mean, I, I find great, kind of the same thing as you, like the ground meat I find I use more than anything it's so accessible if um, i'm gonna give people something yeah. to if someone's like oh i'd love to try wild meat and, I, and i'm gonna give them something to take home i just about always give them grind and i used to feel bad about that i'm like oh i'm so feel so bad i'm not giving them like backstrap or something but mm. it's actually an accessible point yeah people know how to use ground meat so i think i think what you're asking i mean there's a few different ways to make ground wild meat amazing. And one, you know, one of the ways is to cut it with some pork fat or, or other fat. Um, but I don't, I do that if I'm making like a meatball or a burger, but if I'm making like a bolognese or something, it's, I don't find that necessary. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. For a sauce or no, yeah. for a sauce, you don't need to do that. No, but if you had, if you wanted to bind and make a ball, adding a bit of a, a bit of, you know, Pork, lamb, pork fat, lamb, it, 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 wild sheep. It adds a bit of, yeah, it adds a bit of fat to it, which mm-hmm. then allows it to be a bit more of a. If you're not going to do that, I find you have to be very, very precise in your cooking and you cannot overcook it at all. And maybe you want to cook it with some fruit or something, some kind mm-hmm. of something that'll make it so that it's a little bit softer. Yeah. But just the virtue of the game meat without any fat in it, it doesn't want to bind to itself. So if you're trying to make a burger or if you want to make a meatball or a sausage, it won't want to kind of 
glue to itself. Like Unless you, you undercook it. You have to make it so that it's just just barely just barely cooked. Just barely cooked and it doesn't I mean like you can add egg mm-hmm. and you can add you know bread. Bread that'll help bind the meat together. And I actually didn't know that you could add pork to game meat until like probably 10 years ago and that's a <laughs> that's a revelation in my because I, I i mean i just made meatballs with which is bread you know breadcrumbs and an egg but when you put pork in there it just like the pork the pork itself well i actually have wheat free too so like i, I eliminated the, the unless i'm making biscuits or pastries well and that's <laughs> they, you have wheat credits you have wheat credits you do want, yes yeah you want to get poisoned once in a while you, you can poison me anytime you want but <laughs> it's well worth it but I, for for many years, I was very diligent about it, and and I just eliminated the the uh, the the breadcrumbs and just added fat. And the the more fat you add, the more it binds. Also, you can let it set. That's another thing. You can let it set for for overnight in the fridge. That helps a lot as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To, sure. to, cold, to bind. Yeah, the to colder bind it itself. is, the more it'll bind. Yeah, if you don't just make your meatball and then and then cook it instantly, yeah. that I don't think you can make meatballs without bread or Wait. egg. I never made them without that. Yeah, and we can. actually even add. I even add cheese. I use ricotta cheese now. I was gonna make mm, bunch tonight. That bunch sounds like, delicious. Like, you just like. Oh, I'm not talking about. I'm talking about Italian meatballs. I'm talking about Vietnamese meatballs, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Vietnamese meatballs. You just use half pork, half game meat, and you just work it and you work it and you work it and you work it, and eventually that the, the pork and there's there's a chemical reaction. I, I wish I knew the, the. I don't know about that, but it happens and it all binds up. And it's Italian meatballs, good. known as meatballs, has bread. <laughs> <laughs> love I mean when I'm a ball off <laughs> you guys have fun with that yeah 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 it'll be fun though we'll, we'll, we'll make some meatballs that'll be a good time um all right so kind of cover off the three areas I mean I, I did want to talk about like slow cooking I want to talk about cooking steaks I want to talk about making meatballs and binding meat together and I think we hit on that um are you guys gonna do in wild feast 2020 oh yeah yeah cool for me, it was really cool because I have my background in cooking. I mean, I can, I'm a bush cook, but I also do a lot of other cooking. And I even when I'm doing uh, bigger events or fancier events, I try and just, you know, I try and stick pretty true to my roots of being a bush cook. So even when I'm bringing wild game into a more of a culinary realm or whatever you want to call it, I still try and keep the ethos of like nourishing people, really understanding where the animal came from and giving back to the land and, and all of those things that are very important to me. I try and bring that with me. And then I came into this kitchen cooking with you and Derek, and it was it was really great to see that you had these same the same ethos that that was actually all of our intention was to, was to feed people amazing wild food that we were really excited about, really passionate about, and and to bring it like just be really excited and creative with it and see what we could do because none of us want to just make you know a hamburger or whatever anymore. We've all done that. So it's really fun to explore what this means. It's it's really like brought a lot more creativity into into cooking wild game, and that's so fun. That's like oh. that's what I've done my whole life, and I just you know it's just it's endless. It's like a you know you can never yeah. reach the top of that. There's no ceiling. Yeah, totally. Hey, so what was your favorite dish at that at that dinner? Well, I well after the agnolotti, I settled on the wild salad, but I feel like that might be a bit of a cop out. Um, cause I mean, who doesn't love wild forage, beautiful miners, lettuce and chickweed and totally. uh, just like delicate, incredible greens. I think there was hazelnuts in it. 
It was just, you know, it was such a delicate, beautiful salad to pair all of this. Like it was, it was heavier stuff because like I said, we weren't having steaks and stuff. It was a lot of slow braise. So this, this beautiful, delicate salad was so amazing with it. Um, uh, but I, I don't know. I love, I love the way Mark makes pasta. I can't, I just, it's hard (laughs) to get over that. That's, you know, yeah. so you're sticking with the agnolotti. Yeah. I just love that agnolotti is so, so delicious. And I grew up having to go goose hunting. There's always <laughs> geese. And if I had, you'd known the goose could taste this good, you would have. Well, we always had to eat, I always had to eat goose and I didn't, I often, we often beer braised it, which is quite good, but it was nothing, nothing on this, nothing on it. Yeah. This is pretty special. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. For uh, doing well, Feast 2020. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's good for me because there's, there's a whole tradition of cooking wild meat in Europe that, that, um, you know, maybe some people over here don't know about. Right. So I get a lot of inspiration from that type of, uh, Italian cooking, even before I started cooking, you know, there's always a lot of wild boar cooking and there's a lot of recipes for fowl and different types of birds and wild deer and things like that as well. So, I just like the opportunity to have people who have maybe even had wild meat before try some things that are done in a little bit of a different way, right? Because they've been eating wild meat over there forever, basically, mm-hmm. you know, and they don't do hamburgers and they don't do stuff that we do, you know, they don't do meatloaf and stuff, but they'll braise pasta and, and things like that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm down to do another dinner. Like All right. Say so maybe we do the grouse. All right. So what do you guys want to do next year? What, what do you, what do you, what? If we could do the, the traditional, the traditional, uh, British roast grouse dinner, I think that's a pretty cool dinner. All right. So we got to put a call out there to all the backcountry hunters and anglers. We're going to say, Hey, you know, put a couple grouse in the freezer for us. But you have to pluck them properly and, <laughs> and gut them and yeah. freeze them nicely. We, we, we got to show them exactly what we want. And then we'll get, we'll get, how many people do you guys want to feed? Well, we could easily do double what we did this year, but do we want to? Yeah, that was a lot. hundred. <laughs> yeah. A hundred. hundred people. So we do a hundred people. See if we can find a hundred grouse. So this is a shout out to the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers group to help us out. We need a hundred grouse for Wild Feast 2020. And uh, I got a bison draw this year. So, uh, yeah, Chris Print and I are going to go get a couple of bison. So I think the bison will be on the menu. Well, hopefully it's on the menu. <laughs> yeah. That's and, uh, <laughs> preemptive. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hey, so and my favorite dish from wild feast was the, 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 uh, black tail crudo, the sick of black tail crudo. So, so one of, one of our, one of the guys from, uh, um, the back of anglers gave us a whole like leg of a black tail deer from, uh, a hind quarter, hind quarter. Yeah. From, uh, from the Charlottes and uh, Guay. and that was oh, just clear here coming to say hi. Uh, but yeah, what a, what a generous donation, and we and you guys uh, carefully cut it up and turned it into crudo. And I and I and I'm that's my next dinner party. Like I'm gonna pull that one out and call you up and be like, yeah, coach me through this. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make you know elk crudo and uh, maybe so. not with your Roosevelt elk. Yeah, maybe not with Roosevelt elk, but maybe I got some deer in there. It's got some white tailed deer crudo. So if I'm successful hunting this year, which, uh, you know, I'll try and be getting the smallest, youngest (laughs) animal I can. I'll, uh, I'll hook you up. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Um, well, I, I I really appreciate you guys coming and hanging out and having dinner and visiting. It was great, man. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, I'm super glad that Matt's here actually like recording this and watching us and maintaining it. So thank you so much, Matt, so much, Matt, for helping us out. And, uh, 
Anyways, uh, keep an eye out for tickets for Wild Feast for next year. Uh, we'll probably post them around January next year. And uh, I assume this podcast may roll out before then, or maybe we'll be smart and roll it out when we're trying to sell tickets. Um, but we'll see what happens. Anyways, uh, thanks all so much for hanging out with Deep Wild. And uh, keep an eye out for us on the podcast and roll them out. Okay. Thanks, Dylan. Cool. Thanks, Dylan. Cheers. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Thank you.